You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah we're going to continue with our sessions on the prophetic biography, the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We had actually taken a week off in between, but the last session that we had two weeks ago was dedicated to talking about, of course, we, we, up until this point, we've talked about the pre-Islamic condition of the Arabs. We've talked about the family, the lineage of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa We've talked about his immediate family members, his grandparents, his parents, his uncles, his aunts. And we talked about even... Um, the time immediately before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, what was being experienced by his mother, uh, the passing of his father. And then we also talked about the actual birth of the Prophet ﷺ. Some of the key incidents, some of the miraculous events that took place the night of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. And then in the last session, we talked about, well obviously, after birth, as a baby, as a child, as an infant, the most immediate need and the most immediate situation of the Prophet's life was just being nursed, was being taken care of. And something very interesting that we talked about in the last session, that I'll just reiterate here before we move on to this week's session, is that the Prophet of Allah وسلم, was, as was the custom at that time and continues to be in many parts of the world, that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was nursed by women other than his mother. Other than his biological mother, he was breastfed, he was nursed by other women. And the reason why that's so significant is in the Arab culture of that time, and Islam maintained this and solidified this and perfected this, that when a child has been nursed by a woman, that woman basically becomes a, a mother for that child. She ends up becoming his milk mother, his rada'i um. Um Radai. So she basically becomes a mother to him. And the reason why that's important from a from uh, from a social and even a legal, meaning an Islamic perspective, is that she is she has a mother-like relationship with him, meaning he can't get married to her, she doesn't have to observe hijab from him, etc. etc. And one woman nursing or feeding a child actually establishes other relationships as well. So if she's nursed any other babies, any other children, then they become brothers and sisters to that child. And if she has her own biological children, they also become brothers and sisters. So this it creates a whole extended another family for this individual. And that's very important to understand and know. So, so, but what's very, very interesting is that at the very least, we know by name in more authentic narrations, there's actually some narrations which um, tell us that maybe there were more than this, but from very clear authentic narrations, we know a minimum of four women who nursed, who breastfed the Prophet of Allah wasallam. Obviously his biological mother, Amina, there was the two individuals, the two women who we talked about in the previous session two weeks ago, number one was uh, Thuwayba 
and um, she would later on also accept Islam. And then she was the slave girl who was owned by Abu Lahab. And he actually freed her immediately as soon as she brought him the news of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. But being so close to the family and having spent years with the family, having nursed many of the children in that family, she still continued to remain close to the family. Even though she was freed, she was no longer a slave, she still remained close. And so she obviously uh, nursed the Prophet of Allah sallallahu she had also nursed the uncle of the Prophet Hamza radiallahu anhu and that's why the Prophet sallallahu and him had a very special relationship another woman who we talked about very extensively who nursed the Prophet was Ummu Ayman a woman by the name of Baraka Ummu Ayman who would accept Islam later on she would make the hijrah and she was very near and dear to the Prophet she was actually and again I'm jumping ahead but we'll talk about it in more detail she would accompany the mother of the Prophet on various journeys um, and she lived with them. She was basically owned by the mother of the Prophet ﷺ. Later on the Prophet ﷺ would inherit her and of course he would free her. But she was somebody who was very close to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet of Allah's mother. And after the Prophet ﷺ's mother passed away, which is something we'll talk about later, she basically became the mother figure in the Prophet ﷺ's life. He was very attached to her. He was very close to her. There's actual narrations which talk about the fact, and I spoke about this last time, that the Prophet ﷺ, Sahaba used to hear him, that he would refer to her when he would speak to her, when he would address her, he would actually address her as Ya Um. So he wouldn't even address her with her kunya like Ummu Ayman or something because she wasn't his biological mother, but he was so emotionally attached to her, he would actually call her mother. He would refer to her as Ya Um. And, um, and then I mentioned some other things from her biography which were mentioned in the previous session. She of course accepted Islam. Later on she would marry Zayd ibn Haritha, the, 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 the adopted son of the Prophet meaning the, the, the child that the Prophet had taken care of and he had raised him. And from them, of course, that child Usama bin Zayd radiallahu anhumah was born, who was also very near and dear to the Prophet of Allah That's why he was often referred to as Hibbu Rasulillah, because he was the son of not only that child that the Prophet had raised or taken care of, Zayd bin Haritha, but he was also the son of the Umm. Right, the Rada'i Um, the, the 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 nursing mother of the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But the the reason why I kind of recap this is the the specific thing I want to mention before I go on to talking about the fourth woman who nursed the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is out of these four women who nursed the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, two of them were African. Two of them were African. Both both Thuwayba and Ummu Ayman were African. And to, to, to be very clear and blunt about it, they were black, they were African. And, and if we think that, you know, we've maybe seen some racism, or we still have some level of racism left till today, and, you know, we're concerned about it, at that point in time, in that place, in that region, in that culture, it was unbelievable. I mean, an African was to these Arabs, to the purest of these Arabs, the Qurayshi Arabs. The Qurayshi Arabs had such a superiority complex that they, they, they thought they were better than even other Arabs. You know, they used to look down on the other Arabs. The Ansar later on, who would be called the Ansar, the Aus and the Khazraj. In Yathrib, they used to, be look, they used to look down on them. 
They were masakin, they were poor people. They weren't that classy, they weren't high class, they weren't very pure, they didn't have great lineage. So there was such severe racism at that time. And subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala divinely instituted that His beloved messenger Muhammad Rasulullah would be a role model, would be a role model for generations, for centuries, to comfort the entire world from people for people for all, from all four corners of the world, of all shapes, colors, and sizes and languages. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala divinely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala divinely arranged for the fact that two of the women who were the mothers, the milk mothers of the Prophet of Allah were African women. And one of them was so near and dear to the Prophet that for the rest of his life he would refer to her as his mother. He would introduce her to people as his mother. SubhanAllah. So it's, it's a real interesting perspective that we gain from that. Now, the fourth woman who nursed the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, and this is a very, very well-known famous story from the life, from the seerah of the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, was a woman by the name of Halima bint, uh, Halima bint Abi Dhuwayb al-Sa'diyya. Alright, Halima al-Sa'diyya. Alright, um, Sa'diyya, because she was from Banu Sa'd. She was from the tribe of Banu Sa'd. She was from a tribe that was named that. That's why she's referred to as As-Sa'diyya. But she was Halima bint Abi Dhuwayb. And so basically, Ibn Ishaq, very famously in his seerah, he mentions that the custom of that time was that, especially for the Quraysh and for the inhabitants, for the families, especially the elite, the high-class families, the leadership families in, in Mecca from Quraysh, was that they wanted their children to grow up in a very nice, clean, pure environment, away from city life, away from any type of pollution there might be, and away from any type of dangers that were there present in the city. At, at the same time, particularly in, at the time, and again, you see the divine um, arrangement of the tarbiyah of the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, that during that time that the Prophet ﷺ was born, there was actually um, a disease that was spreading in Mecca, and it was, uh, it was affecting infants. So there was a lot of infant mortality during the time, uh, during the birth of the Prophet of Allah It was a very common problem in Mecca, and the Quraysh were growing very concerned about this. I mean, especially for a son, you know, they couldn't risk losing a son, right? He was the future, he was the leadership. So people in Quraysh um, really latched onto this practice of, you know, these, these wet nurses, what they would call. So these women who lived out in the countryside, and they would have many children of their own, and especially when they would have small children themselves so that they would be physically capable of nursing another child, what they would do in order to earn some money and to uh, be able to you know, make life a little bit better for themselves out there in the boonies, what they would do is, they would come into Mecca, they would approach the families of Quraysh, and they would offer to take their children away from the disease, away from city life, away from any danger, away from pollution, and also the language was also an influence as well because Mecca was an epicenter was a cosmopolitan city so Mecca was a trade center all right and because of that people were coming to Mecca from far and wide and people were coming to Mecca to do business and that was naturally obviously affecting the language and the purity of the speech for the people in Mecca and for the people of Quraysh they didn't want their children growing up speaking you know Spanglish Right? They did, we, we understand what that is, especially here in Texas. They didn't want their kids growing up speaking Spanglish, 
All right, they wanted them, uh, you know, like like our kids, like Desi kids, you know, mefainhu, right? Like, what does that mean, right? So it's half Urdu, half English. So they didn't want their kids like growing up like that. They wanted them speaking proper, clean, pure, authentic language. All right, eloquent speech. And so that was an obviously another motivation. So these women would come and they would basically, you know, take these children from their families. They would request them to give their children to them. And they would give their children over to whatever woman seemed most suited or best. Um, and it was almost like a first come, first serve type of basis. And these women would take those children. They would keep them out there for a minimum of two years. And during that time, of course, they would bring them back occasionally, sometimes on an annual basis or semi-annual basis, or the families themselves would go out and visit the children. And it still seems kind of strange. I mean, even that concept, that notion to us seems extremely strange, right? Like what kind of a mother would be okay not seeing her newborn baby for six months at a time? But again, different cultures, different practices, and they had their own personal reasons for doing so. Especially if you take the reason of the disease being very, very apparent at that time and being very dangerous at that time. So you, you, that makes, ends up making a lot of sense. Nevertheless, that was their practice. So these women from Banu Sa'ad, they ride towards Mecca to get babies. And because there, were, there was a financial incentive, they would get money in exchange in return for this. So they ride towards Mecca to come and take some of these wealthy babies, you know, babies of wealthy families and leaders' families, so that they got some hookups, they got some connections, plus they'll get paid. It was a win-win-win situation all around. And so they're coming to get these children to take them back and raise them for a couple of years and nurse them and take care of them and raise them properly. Amongst these women who decides to come is Halima, uh, Halima Sa'diya, Anha. And I say radiallahu anha because later on she would accept Islam. But nevertheless, we'll talk about the situation at hand. But Halima comes to Mecca as, uh, as well to receive one of these babies. Now, we know a little bit about her. I'll start out at the very top. So her name is Halima bint Abi Dhuwayb. Uh, her father was known as Abu Dhuwayb. His name was actually Abdullah bin Al-Harith. And he was from the tribe of Banu Sa'ad. And Halima herself, she was married to a man by the name of Al-Harith bin Abdul Uzza. Al-Harith bin Abdul Uzza bin Rafa'a. And he was also from Banu Sa'ad. He was from the same tribe. So the woman's name is Halima. Her husband's name is Al-Harith. They were... And they had some biological children. They had their own children, some children of their own. They had a son by the name of Abdullah bin Al-Hadith. They had a daughter by the name of Unaysa bin Al-Hadith. And they had a third daughter by the name of Hudafa. And some books actually tell us that her name was actually Judama. This is a common issue that often occurs in history is the, a, a little bit of discrepancy in terms of where the dots are placed. So either her name was Judama or her, uh, excuse me, Hudafa, not Judama, that would mean something terrible. But uh, her name was either Hudafa or her name was Judama. Um, so there's a dispute in history books. She was actually known as, she was known as Shema. She was more popularly known as Shema. That was kind of like her nickname. And that's what she was known for. And later on in the seerah of the Prophet she will actually come up. She actually comes back much, much later during the Prophet days in Medina. She actually comes and visits the Prophet of Allah It's a very, very beautiful story, inshallah. When we get there, we'll talk about it. But nevertheless, so she had three children of her own, a son and two daughters. And so Halima... She actually tells her story herself, and she says that 
you know, it was, a, it was a year of drought. It was a very, very severe drought that we were experiencing there in Banu Sa'ad, where we lived. And so, especially because of the drought, normally we try to live by raising some, some livestock, by growing some, you know, vegetation, by, by doing some farming, you know, raising some livestock. That's how we tried to make a living. But because it was such a severe drought, nothing would grow, animals were dying. Um, it was very, very difficult. So, a lot of the women in the area who had young children themselves, they decided to go to Mecca and let's, you know, work as a wet nurse for the next couple of years. And maybe that'll help us take care of our families and so you obviously see here that even the women are stepping up and you know if need be even at that time in that culture they're taking they're they're stepping up and doing what they can for their families so she says there were about 10 women we rode out um, towards Mecca now typically in a on a long journey especially for women uh, or even for men who maybe weren't very used to riding on. A camel was something that is very uncomfortable to make a long journey on. It's a very durable animal, but it's also very uncomfortable. The Arabs would actually talk quite a bit about this. Horses were something that, you know, people only who were used to them, were accustomed to it, could actually ride a horse for such a long journey. So typically in this situation, when they had a long journey to take, and it was like a woman who had no experience, not a lot of expertise in riding an animal for a long journey, they would travel on mules, donkeys, they would travel on mules. All right, it was a little bit easier, it was a little uh, bit more comfortable. So they would travel on mules or donkeys. So she said that it was a very severe drought and I had, I was riding a mule, she says. She says, I was riding a mule and with me was my husband and we had our children with us. Uh, actually, she says we had left our two older daughters back there in Banu Sa'ad with some family. We had our son with us, Abdullah, who was an infant at this time as well. He was this, this brother of the Prophet this milk brother of the Prophet was very close to him in age. So he was a newborn baby himself. So he said, we just had the newborn baby with us. He was on the camel with my husband and I myself was riding the mule. Now she says that we were all stricken with the drought in Banu Sa'ad. But she said, we happened to be one of the poorest families in that area. She said our mule was, she describes the mule that it was brown in color and it was very, very weak because we didn't have enough food to properly feed it. It was very, very weak. She said the camel that my husband was riding was a she-camel. And we brought the she-camel so that we could milk it and that would basically be our sustenance, our food during the journey and I would be nursing my child. She says, but... Again, due to a lack of food that we were able, grain that we were able to feed the camel or the mule, the mule was becoming weak and therefore it was becoming very slow. And the camel was not giving any milk. The camel was not providing any milk. So as a consequence, me and my husband were hungry. We were starving on the journey. And as a consequence to that, I was unable to breastfeed my child, my baby. So she's describing her condition. Again, one common um, qualm that I have is um, that a lot of times when we talk about seerah, and that's kind of the objective here, uh, when we talk about seerah, it, it's too much of a long, long time ago in a faraway place, or it's kind of skimmed over where we don't really realize the situation. I mean, I want you to understand exactly what's going on here. This is like your car running out of gas in the middle of nowhere, and it's the middle of the night, and you're hungry, and you're tired, and you're scared, 
And you have you, not just you, but you have your wife and your newborn baby with you. And nobody has anything to eat or drink. And your car runs out of gas and you're stranded in the middle of nowhere. I want you to imagine what that must have, what that must have felt like. What that feels like. The level of desperation that you have. The level of hopelessness that starts to settle in. How frustrated and angry and you know, confused and worried you become. So that's her situation. She's describing it. She's saying, we're hungry. My baby's hungry. But you know, the mule won't even move anymore because it's hungry. The camel's hungry, so it's not giving any milk. And all around, is, everything's just falling apart. And we're trying to go towards Makkah. And because the mule has become so slow, she says that the, we were about 10 women, 10 families that had left to go to Makkah and receive these babies. They've gone way ahead of us. We got left behind. So we're by ourselves. We're completely left behind. And she talks about why that was a dual problem. Not did we get left behind that we're by ourselves on such a long journey. But there was another reason why that was a huge problem. She'll tell us about that in a little bit. So she says, nevertheless, this is our condition. But, but some way, somehow, we continue to push on and push forward. And we keep motivating ourselves. She actually talks about the fact that, you know, and, and the night before we reached Makkah, the night we, and we, at night you couldn't travel at night. There was no driving straight through. You didn't just take shifts driving. The night was the night. You were in the middle of the desert. There was no light. You had to set up camp. Before the sun fully set, you had to stop. You had to build a fire. You had to set up some type of a tent. You had to tie up your camel. Otherwise, you'd be stuck in the dark. All right? And so she said we camped out and we had about a day's journey left from Makkah and by that time our situation had become so severe my baby was so starving and so hungry that the baby cried all night long and we stayed up with the baby all night long so on top of everything else we're fatigued we're tired we haven't slept in two days and she says some way somehow we arrive in Makkah in this condition but she says what do I find when I arrive in Mecca? I arrive in Mecca to find that all the other women have gone out, gone around, and basically received all of the babies from all the good families, all the families that could afford to pay somebody, all the families that were, you know, that, that people were very, the, the, the women were very motivated, were very interested in getting the babies of those families because they were rich, they were wealthy, they were influential, they were important people. Everybody's picked up children. And I'm the only one who's left. And she said, I made the rounds to the people we had heard of, the families that we had heard were expecting. We, I made the rounds and found out. They said, no, we already gave it to her and we gave it to her and we gave it to her. And I'm getting rejected from every home until finally, she says, I hear about, but there is one baby. Every home I go to, they tell me, but there is one baby that I don't think anybody picked up yet. And that is the grandchild of Abdul Muttalib. That's Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Muhammad the son of Abdullah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And she said, even I. This is a very interesting thing. Halima, she says herself in the narration, that even I, when every single home they would tell me about this baby, I would immediately tell myself, I would think to myself, I do not want that baby. And she said, in fact, when I got to Mecca and I spoke to the women, do you know if there's any children left? They said, as far as we know, there's only one baby because we all went to that house 
to inquire about the baby, but we decided not to take that baby. And the reason for that was, إِنَّهُ yatim, Because he's an orphan. His father has died, his father's passed away. And he comes from a good family, and his grandfather's a big person, but his grandfather's got a lot on his plate, he's got a whole extended family, he's got lots of grandchildren, he's got a whole city and a tribe to take care of. Grandfather's too busy, we're never gonna get any FaceTime with Abdul Muttalib. I mean, Abdul Muttalib was like a legend, he was like a living legend. We're not gonna get any FaceTime with Abdul Muttalib. You would have to deal with the parents. You'd have to work out a deal with the parents. And the father is dead. So the mother, what can she provide? What can she give? Even financially, we're not really sure what she's got, what she doesn't have, how her situation is with her family, and we don't know. So we can't really depend on, you know, depending on some woman, to the mother to compensate us, because of the culture at that time. And so the father's dead, so money's not even sure. And even if the mother can guarantee money, it's still not, I mean, it still doesn't provide the other incentive. We're not getting a hookup. You know, you're not going to be, you know, connected to some important guy in Makkah. She's just an average woman in Makkah. So what's the point of that? It's not some big time hookup. So nobody was motivated to take Rasulullah Halima herself says, I was not motivated to take Rasulullah either. And so she says that, but after I made all the rounds, I realized there was only one child left to take. And that was that yatim boy. That was that yatim boy. That yatim baby. So she says, I go there, and I tell my husband that, look, there's no, nothing left. And, and my husband said, okay, then let's head back. And she says, no, I don't want to go back empty-handed. I don't want to go back empty-handed. You know, you know, even if we don't get any money out of this, it will be embarrassing for me. Because all the other women came there and they picked up a baby and they at least came back with something. You know, if we don't get any money out of this deal, nobody will know that. That'll be our private little business. But at least we'll save some face. Right? At least I did come back with the baby. At least I didn't show empty-handed. You know, at least I got hired to some position. So I didn't come back unemployed like I went. So I, I, I'll go pick up that baby, I don't care. And she said, my husband told me the same thing. You know, subhanAllah, she says, my husband tells me, Al-Hadith, he says, He says, you never know. God could put some blessing in, a, in, in that child for us. God could provide some huge blessing for us in that child, through that child. So go ahead, go pick up the child if you want to. So she says, I go there, I receive the child, I take the child, now, here's where it gets very interesting. Remember, she said that my child had been crying for two days because I had not been able to nurse him properly. I had not been able to feed him properly. I was starving, I was hungry, I was out of milk. She says that as soon as I picked up that child, and typically what would, the, the procedure that was there was, when the wet nurse would come, the mother, the family would actually ask the wet nurse to nurse the child, to feed the child there in the home so that they would at least feel some comfort. They would at least feel comfortable letting her leave with the child, that the child is comfortable with this woman and he, he, he nurses from this woman. So that was kind of like your interview. That was the, that was the test run. All right? She says that as soon as I picked him up and I brought him close to myself, 
and he started nursing, she said, I was able to feed him. And she said, I fed him until he was completely done. And she said, I was so like surprised and shocked by this, but then at the same time, so, you know, grateful for the opportunity. I told him, I asked him, can you hold on just for a second? I got to take care of something real quick. And she said, my baby Abdullah who was with me, I picked him up and I nursed him as well. I said, hey, I don't know what's going on, but whatever's going on, I got to take care of this situation. So she said, I fed my own son. And she said, subhanAllah, he drank and he, you know, nursed until he was perfectly okay. He was full. And there was no explanation. And immediately it hit me, something special is starting to happen. So I told him, you know, if you guys are okay, I would love to take your child and I'll take care of him. And now all of a sudden, very motivated. Now it's kind of like, okay, you're the ba- you got the baby who's still left. It wasn't like that anymore. Now all of a sudden it was like, please let me take your child. I'll take care of him. Look, I'm this. My father's name is this. My grandfather was such and such. My husband is so and so. You can ask anybody about us. Everybody knows us. And so the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, of course very reluctantly like any mother would, she hands over the Prophet of Allah ﷺ to this woman Halima. She says that, I go back, I tell my husband, I've brought this child, my husband's very happy for me. Um, and so we immediately pack up our stuff because when I got back there, I, I begged the women to please at least wait for me. Look, you guys left us behind on the way here, right? Please at least wait for us. You know, give, give us a little bit of a chance. You know, wait for us until I come back. I'm just going to go get that baby. I'll be right back. So when I get back, they're all packed up and they're ready and they're waiting. So as soon as I get back, my husband's ready to go too. So I pick up the baby, get back onto my mule, and we start to leave. But where it gets interesting is, my mule is perfectly fine. It's walking fast. It's perfectly okay. Like, there was never any problem. And she says, we get a little bit out of Mecca, and then we have to camp there that night. And before going to sleep, my husband's like... You know, are you hungry? She, she says, yes, I'm hungry. Are you hungry? Yeah, we're both hungry. He says, let me go try to milk the camel. See if we have any luck. She's like, why are you going to bother? We tried so many times. It's not happening. It's not working. So he says, okay, let me at least try. So she says that my husband goes and he milks the she-camel. And it's, the bowl is full. I drank, my husband drank. Till we were full and there was still left over. So much milk. I was able to nurse my child again, nurse the Prophet of Allah again. And she said, we all slept that night. And she actually says, she says, when I look back and I think that was probably the most peaceful, amazing sleep and rest I've ever had my entire life. She says, slept like a baby. With babies. Right? Anybody who has babies, no, you never sleep like a baby. When you have babies. But she said, I did that night. And it was amazing. And we woke up the next morning, and we head back. We're able to reach our home. And when we reach our home, she said, we were stricken by a drought. We, were, we, were, we had been stricken by a drought. A horrible, terrible drought and famine. And she said, but even in Banu Sa'ad, the land that my husband owned was probably the worst. Ajda. She said it was terribly just barren. It was dry, it was hard, it was terrible land. 
And so she said, actually, one of the reasons why I had to go to Makkah and get a baby and make some money was because even our livestock was dying because we couldn't even graze them on our own land. And it was very difficult to negotiate with another landowner to let your animals go and graze on their land because then they would want your animals. Like, what's in it for me? So we would have to keep selling part some of our animals to allow our other you know, uh, the herd, the rest of the herd, to be able to properly graze, that slowly our herd was being thinned off. So we were going broke. So she says, but I get back, and we arrive there, and before you know it, you know, our land is the greenest patch of land in the entire tribe, in the entire region. Our goats and our sheep graze to their fill. And the, 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 the goats, when we milk them, so much milk comes out of them, that actually we were able to start a very, very good, successful milk business. We had the best milk store in town before you knew it. My husband was selling milk. And everything was great. And she said, actually, the other people who lived around us, they used to look at us and, and their drought was still continuing and so their land was very barren and their animals couldn't graze properly. And they used to just come stand there and look at our property and be like, what is going on here? What's going on here? And she said that even a couple of the tribe's leaders who were very wealthy and they used to have shepherds. They would hire shepherds to take care of their herd. She said, we were simple folk. My husband would do it himself. But... And my husband and later on the, the, the kids, the boys, they would do it themselves. But some of the more, the tribes leaders, they would actually hire shepherds to take care of their herds and their flocks. And he said that they used to scold their shepherds saying, why aren't you able to feed you know, my herd or my flock properly? Why are my animals dying? Why are they not providing milk? Look at the animals of Harith. Look at the animals of Harith. Why is Harith able to sell more milk than I can? What is going on? You must be lazy. You must not be feeding my animals properly. So she said it was like a whole situation was going on. It was unbelievable. Like it wasn't some subtle thing. Even those subtle little things, those are barakats and blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those are barakats from Allah. But you know what I mean by subtle things? It's something small that you notice about your own situation. It's something very small that you're able to know. No, no, it wasn't like this. It was like... In your face, it was like very obvious and apparent. It was miraculous. It was shocking. And he said this, and she says that this continued on to the point where other people, the other women, because you, know, you know the women would get together and they would talk, and since they had all brought family, they had all brought children from the families of Quraysh. So they used they had something in common. They used to talk about it, like how's the kid doing with you? What about the kid that you brought back? How is he doing? And they would talk. And she said that the women would start to comment to me. Could they look around my house and they look at my land and they look at the animals and they see the milk store running. And, and, my, and my kids were like, you know, very healthy and they're doing good and they're happy. And it's just unbelievable. So he said the women would actually sit there and look at me because remember, she said that I used to be the... I was a loser. I was always the poor miskina. I was the one with the broke husband and the dried up land and the animals that were about to die. You know, I was always the miskina in the group. I was always like, oh, she's poor, you know, feel bad for her. I was always the one that everybody felt bad for. 
And all of a sudden they're all looking at me and they actually would comment, they would say that you have acquired some huge blessing in your life. You have acquired some amazing blessing in your life. We're not sure what it is, we're not sure exactly why or what or how or when or from where, but you've acquired some unbelievable huge blessing in your life because there's no other explanation for this. And she, she then goes on to comment, so aside from this miraculous turn of events, and she says, myself and my husband, now this is what was going on and this is how the people were seeing, but what were they talking about privately in their own home? So she said, me and my husband, we, used to, we would sit together and we would talk and we traced this complete, you know, you know, change of luck, you know, as we say, as a figure of speech. The whole turn of events, the whole drastic change. When we traced it back, we were able to trace it back to the day we picked up Rasulullah And she said, me and my husband, we came to the same conclusion. And so we actually said to each other that this child is the reason why we have all this barakah blessing. It is this child. There's another beautiful, amazing story that she actually then goes on to comment that and the Prophet of Allah she said, aside from just us getting so many blessings in our life, there was something unique about him. This child had a nur to his face. Like he just had this appealing, attractive, like he had this magnetic quality to him. You'd want to just sit, even as a baby, you'd just want to sit around and just look at him all the time. People would come over and just want to sit there and just hold him all the time. He had this magnetic quality about him. And then she, actually, she says that as he started to grow up, you know, as, as he became, went from an infant to a toddler, started walking around, crawling around and walking around and stuff, he was about two years old. She said he didn't look like an average two-year-old. He was taller than an average two-year-old. He was healthier than an average two-year-old. You know, he seemed stronger than an average two-year-old. He seemed a lot more intelligent than the average two-year-old. There was something special about this child. He was physically, emotionally, intellectually gifted. He wouldn't cry. He wouldn't scream. He wouldn't, you know, fuss. He was very calm, smooth. There was, some, there was a calming, serene quality that this child had about him. He was tall, he was strong, he was intelligent, he was smart. He would pick up, he would speak. You know, there was something special about this child. And subhanAllah, she tells a beautiful story that actually comes later. But I'll, t- I'll tell you now, she actually mentions a beautiful story about the Prophet ﷺ. She says that, you know, and, and because there was something so special about this child, and we knew that this child was the source of all these barakat and blessings in our lives, we had instructed our oldest daughter. We had instructed our oldest daughter, Shayma, to listen. You know, you and your brother, you know, your, your brothers, Abdullah and Muhammad. You know, Abdullah being your biological brother and Muhammad being your, your milk brother. You know, so Muhammad and your brother, Abdullah, you know, they're, they're, they're little kids. They run around. They do crazy things, you know, like boys do, Right? So they, they, you know, they do crazy things like little boys do and stuff like that. That's fine. But I want you to always keep an eye on him. I want you to always watch him. I want you to watch out for Muhammad. I want you to take care of him. I want you to watch him. Okay, he's your responsibility. I want you keeping an eye on him. I want you to be a big, a good older sister. And so we had kind of emphasized her to always watch out for him. And she says that one day in the house, I look around and I don't see any of the children in the house. 
And so I go outside and I see that the sun was at its peak. And when the sun would at its, be at its peak like that, and it's Arabia, it's the desert. So she said when the sun would be at its peak like that, even the animals would go and try to find shades. Even the animals would go huddle up underneath the trees, would go and sit in the shadow that was cast by maybe the wall of the house or something. They would all eat, the animals would all find the shades and they would, you know, recede into the shades and they would basically rest, they would sleep. She literally says, They would literally take a nap. They would go into the shades, they would rest because it was so hot until it would cool down a little bit, then they would come back out. So it's that time of the day where even the animals can't take it. You won't even see an animal out there in the sun. And she said, I don't see the children, so I know the children aren't outside at this time. Why would they go out at this time? It's, it's bad for you. It's very unhealthy. You can get sick. And she says, I look out and I see my daughter, the one who I put in charge of Rasulullah in charge of Muhammad I see her sitting with Muhammad outside in the middle of the grass. Not underneath the tree, not sitting next to the wall, just sitting there in the middle, in the open. And so I specifically told her, and not only is that bad for the kids, but I had told her, she was older, and she's intelligent. I told her, listen, watch out for him, he's a little kid. So she says, I rush out there, and I'm screaming, I'm furious, like, you know, like moms get. So she says, I rush out there, what are you guys doing out there? Get inside, you're going to get sick, don't sit underneath the sun like this. And I actually, when I get out there, I see that Muhammad is kind of like laying down in the grass, you know like kids do, he's laying down in the grass and Shema is sitting next to him and they're just chilling. And I go out there and I say, what are you doing? I start, you know, scolding, I start yelling at my daughter, what are you doing? Sitting out here, you're going to get sick and he's a little kid and he's going to get sick, you should know better, I told you. And she says, no, mom, everything's okay. She says, what do you mean everything's okay? She says, I've been watching little brother. I've been watching little brother. And one thing I noticed was, he walks around during the daytime outside. Like, doesn't bother him. And then I was like, how does he walk around during the daytime like that, during noon, and it doesn't bother him? She said, until I noticed something, I looked up and there's always a cloud over him casting a shade on him. There's always a cloud casting a shade on him. And as he moves the cloud and the shade moves, it's always there. And so he just comes out here and he just chills. He's not affected by it. And so she said, I actually come and I sit right next to him so I get some of that shade too. Subhanallah. And, um, and Halima already believed that there was something amazing about this child. And so it's, it's just adding to the list of things. So she's like, unbelievable, amazing. So anyways, when the Prophet of Allah reaches the age of two, that was usually the tradition, the culture, the custom, that when the child would reach the age of two, it was time to take him back home. So she comes back to Makkah because the mother of the Prophet ﷺ is expecting him and expecting her to bring him back. So she goes back to Makkah and she arrives there and she says, I did not want to give this child up. I did not. You know, not only because of all the blessings, right? Like we were living it up. 
So I, not only did I not want to lose all those blessings in my life, but there was just an attachment I had also developed to the child. So I didn't want to give the child up. And so when I reached back there, I go there and the mother of course is very, the mother of the Prophet is very ecstatic, very happy to be reunited with her child. And I, um, I, I tried to talk to her mother that, you know, did you ever consider, did you think about maybe sending him for some more time? And she says, no, absolutely not. Right, being a mother, she says, no, we're good. Um, and so she's like, I start to get kind of anxious my anxiety is building and my husband's telling me, calm down, it's okay, relax, it'll be all right. My anxiety is building. And she said, subhanAllah, again, this is by the divine plan and wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She said, it just so happened that that disease that was going around Makkah at that time, that a lot of babies and a lot of little kids were falling ill and dying because of. She said, it was, there, were, there had been a lot of cases very recently. It was at its peak. A lot of kids had gotten sick. A lot of little babies had just recently died. And so that occurred to me and I told her, I told the Prophet's mother, Amina, that, you know, I just got here to Mecca and I heard about all these kids that are getting sick and that are dying in Mecca. I know you wouldn't want to and even I've grown so attached to your child in the last couple of years. I wouldn't want anything to happen to Muhammad. He's like a son to me too. I wouldn't want anything to happen to this beautiful boy. So let me take him back out there. It's clean, it's safe, it's away from all this mess. You know, it's a dirty city. It's clean, it's safe out there. Let me take him out there for a little bit longer until he's a little bit older, his immune system's a little bit stronger, he's a little more intelligent, he won't go and you know, um, stick, you know, stick his hand in something nasty or go and get sick or play with other sick little kids. You know, he, he'll, he'll be a little bit more older and he'll be easier to take care of and watch and protect inshallah. So she tells, she convinces the mother of the Prophet and she's able to bring Muhammad Rasulullah back to Banu Sa'ad, back to her land, back to her farm or whatever you want to call it. And she's able to bring him back there. And there the Prophet stayed with her. There's not an exact, in the authentic narrations, there's not an exact amount of time that's given, but it was about maybe anywhere between uh, six to uh, six months to about a year. Um, he was there, or a little bit longer than that actually, maybe about a year and a half, he stayed more with Halima. But during that year and a half, during that by year, year and a half, something very, very, a very significant event occurred. A, a big deal. It was a real, real uh, serious incident that occurred. And again, that's very well known to us. It's very commonly mentioned in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, in the prophetic biography. And that was the angels, Jibreel ﷺ, coming down, splitting the chest of the Prophet ﷺ and cleansing and washing his heart. The entire incident, the entire narration, inshallah, I'll share uh, with everyone next week, inshallah, in the next seerah session, because otherwise it'll go a little too long. But nevertheless, that event occurred, and then we'll talk about what was the after math of that event and what exactly happened as a consequence to that event occurring and we'll talk about the event itself inshallah through the actual narrations in detail may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the understanding of the life of the Prophet and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless us with the true love of Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam subhanallahi wa bihamdihi subhanakallahum bihamdik nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk